0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage ban, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, one of the temptations we can have is to think that the Lord has hated or despised his people when we go through Hosea. And the other thing we can think is that maybe the God of the Old Testament an angry God, the God of the New Testament is a, a loving, a kind God. Uh, this is not a new view. If, you've, if you're familiar with church history, Marcion uh, is one who held to this view in the second century. One who saw the God of the Old Testament being vengeful and wrathful, while the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, is gracious and merciful. Now, this is, uh, we know, as a heresy. This is not true. There are not two gods in the Bible. There is one God. And so, when we go through Hosea, we can sort of see a little bit of the force of that. Not that I affirm that teaching. We can see a little bit of that force if we're not careful, if we don't really put Uh, this in the context of Hosea and Scripture, and especially when we turn to chapter 11, uh, we see a different view of God. And so when we look at this, we can say, well, then how do we know that God is really a a loving, kind, merciful God who is long-suffering with his people, a God who does not thwart his purpose, uh, but a God who is committed to his covenant reality? How, How do we know this truth? Well, as we look at this, we'll see love by God turned against God, and God's purpose stands. And so let's begin by love by God, and we look at verses 1 through 4. When we look at this, we have this recollection, this, this reminiscence of the Lord, that he thinks about Israel as a child. And so the, the picture is, as if, is Israel not quite an infant, but, you know, younger or, or beginning in her history, and how the Lord loves Israel. So there was an affection, a certain love for his people, and how the Lord finds his people in Egypt. Now remember how Israel, like Adam, has transgressed the covenant, Hosea 6 verse 7, and how Israel is presented as this new Adam who who has failed. But how has God fundamentally treated his child? Because we can say, well, maybe in Hosea 6, 7, God's still angry, and so when he finds Israel, he's not really loving them. But we find how the Lord has called them. He has called them. His word goes forth. His word a- comes to a fruition or, or there's action that comes about from his word. He calls his son. His son leaves Israel, or Egypt. And as his son leaves Egypt, the more they're called. And so you think that as the Lord continues to give them his word, continues to call them to Christ, continues to prosecute the promises and as this goes forth you would think that they would come to the lord in more affection more love more compassion but we find that that's not the case we find that the more uh, he calls them the more they go away the more they keep sacrificing to the bales and how they keep giving in to their idolatry So as we look at this, we we find that it's the problem of Baal Peor in Numbers 25 of how Israel continues to give in to this idolatry and how Israel does not turn to the true God. We go on and and we think about Ephraim and how Ephraim is and what the Lord has done. Well, in verse 3, there's this comparison of what we have with Ephraim, how he uh, teaches Ephraim how to walk. And going on in verses three and four, uh, some take this text to mean uh, that it, now the Lord's taking Ephraim as a child and looking at Ephraim as a child, and as the Lord is is working with them, it's how the Lord guides them. But I do think that when we look at the the natural reading of the text and the intention of the text, that the Lord is speaking of Ephraim as a young calf. So we think back to the stubborn heifer of 4, verse 16, of how the Lord has shown his love, but how his people are like the stubborn heifer. Uh, They are too stubborn to see what is good for them. They continue to buck against the Lord, and they're not truly giving in and submitting to the Lord. Uh, The Lord is the one who does not break the neck of the calf. The Lord is the one who breaks down the altars. And so we, we have this reading of the text of seeing Ephraim as this calf, and how the Lord is the one who takes Ephraim. And and the intention of this is to communicate that Ephraim is an animal that is is so incompetent, to to put it delicately, uh, an animal that lacks so much intelligence that it doesn't even know how to walk. And so the Lord has to take this helpless people that can't even walk and has to actually train them to walk and so the cords and the bands that the lord puts around them is not to hold them back or to control them or to harm them or to manipulate them but it's to actually teach them and train them to come to maturity so that they would love the lord that's the intention here and so as the lord uses this metaphor he's calling to their attention the reality that they are those who are cared for and loved by God. As we go on in verse 4, and this is where I, I see that calf metaphor. He takes the yoke off them. So in other words, they're bound down by their sin. They're, they're, they're held down by their sin, and, and they're bound by the yoke of sin. And, and there's no comfort. They're, they're just given over to it, and the Lord's removed it from them. And the Lord feeds them and cares for them. So it's this intimate care of God showing his love for his his people and doing nothing but caring for them, feeding them, nourishing them. And what do they do? They continue to turn back to their idolatrous ways. They turn to the Baals and they do not follow the living God. And so verses 1 through 4 is where the Lord proves the reality that all I've done is love you. All I've done is cared for you. All I've done is led you, delivered you from Egypt, took off the bondage of sin, took off the bondage of slavery, taught you how to walk, and, and worked with you, and all you've done is pursued the Baals. So that's verses 1 through 4. Going on then when we look at what has happened as they've turned against God. Now verse 5, if you notice, the ESV, I believe, has a footnote, or at least some translations does. Uh, where uh, verse 5 is a bit of a a challenge to translate. I'm kind of going with the NIV translation. I think that's actually a pretty good translation where it says, will they not return to Egypt, which is another way of translating the Hebrew text that it becomes sort of a a, a rhetorical question. Now, the reason for doing this is what the Lord has said, because he says right here in the context, um, Assyria is going to be their king, But we have the whole context of what the Lord has done. He has promised that Israel is going to return to Egypt to a place of slavery and enslavement. And so that's what what Israel is going to do. So what the Lord is simply summarizing here is he's saying, you want a place of bondage, you want a place of sin, I'm going to give you that place of sin. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Israel said, we want a king like the nations." So the Lord says, fine, I'm going to give you a foreign king. I'm going to give you a foreign land, and I'm going to give you the foreign king that you want. And so they're going to be ruled over by Assyria. Now, we see this actually happening, as I've mentioned, uh, with the history of Hosea. In 2 Kings 17, verses 1 through 5, we we have a history of this, where you have Hosea uh, thinks that he's smarter than Assyria. So Assyria is going to carry him off, and he is conquered by Assyria, but he tries to get Egypt to intervene, so he pits Assyria against Egypt. And he thinks that in his wisdom, as he appeals to these two different kingdoms, he's going to secure and ground uh, the reality of his life, and and, and his destiny, and his legacy. Uh, But he finds out rather abruptly that the Lord has different plans. And so the Lord is pointing out the problem here. He's appealing to one nation, to another nation. They're they're going to desire to go to the foreign land, have a foreign king. And the Lord's saying, fine, I'll give you exactly what you want, which is again what we've learned from Hosea, what the canons of Dort reminds us. We've got to be careful when we push the boundaries of God's grace. Sometimes the Lord gives us exactly what we want, only to find out when we get it, we don't really want it. And so that's something that Israel does teach us when we look at the history of this. He thinks these nations will save him, but rather it's placing the yoke back upon his own neck. But we find why, why this is a, a problem. Because you have refused to return to me. And when you think about this in terms of Second uh, Kings 17, that is a problem. It's not, I want to return and repent and bow my knee before the Lord as one who's redeemed. I want to pursue my ways. And so the Lord's saying, all you had to do was come to me, repent, turn from your current course of life, and you will have life. You will be redeemed. But there is no hope. There is no redemption that's going on here because the people are those who have decided to continue to pursue their current course of action without any repentance at all. And so then the Lord goes on and says what's going to happen. The sword's going to rage against them. And again, this is recalling Deuteronomy 28, 29, uh, basically the curses of what the Lord's going to bring against his people. The people think they're wise. They think they're going to spare themselves from the sword. Uh, But the Lord uses the nations to bring this judgment, uh, this justice against them. And the sword continues to rage against them. And and the Lord's going to deal with them as the Lord deals with them. Uh, And so the Israel is going to recognize they're not going to find life. And what do they do? Well, they turn to their own counsel. And as we consider this counsel, it's not that counsel's wrong. I mean, Proverbs speaks of wisdom and, and that there's wisdom in searching out many counselors and getting a variety of counsel. But the difference is you can receive poor counsel or wise counsel. And what Israel's doing is they're pursuing the false counsel, the poor counsel, the worldly counsel, not, not a counsel that holds out the wisdom of God. They're pursuing a counsel of their own devices, of their own uh, making. And this isn't something that's going to lead to life or repentance but it will lead to death." And so this is a warning again, where the Lord is saying, listen, you, you sought out counsel, you, you desired to do things, but you're, it's again, it's like the language of doing what is right in one's own eyes or seeing that this is pleasing to the eye. In other words, this is what I desire, this is what I'm going to get, and this is what I'm going to pursue, and it never ends very well uh, for anyone he goes on to say why this is really, really the problem. My people are what? Bent from turning away from me. So again, this is their fundamental desire is to turn from the Lord. Now, verse 7 is another verse that when you read this, you say, well, what was the problem? Because it says they're turning from me, but they call out to the most high. So, you know, somebody who's a bit of a skeptic and says the God of the Old Testament Is a God who is mean and rude and vindictive, a a God who just wants to strike his people dead. They can say, see, the people call out to God, and and what does he do? He doesn't raise them up. He doesn't give them life. Well, this is where, again, you've got to kind of go into the text. I'm a little disappointed that the ESV has translated it this way, uh, because when we hear most high and they capitalize it, the implication is that they're calling out to God, the most high. But that's not what the text is communicating. A literal rendering of the text is, ale, ale is what's going on. And so there's a bit of a sarcasm that's going on from, from God himself. So he's saying you're looking up to the high places. In other words, emphasis on most high and God, al being a shortened form of Baal, not El, but ale, And so you have sort of this this pun or this problem that's going on. They're looking up to the high places, looking up to what they would say is the most high, but they're not looking above the high places of the very altars of Baal. And so the problem that's going on here is they're not looking to God. So looking up to the most high is them looking up to the mountain altars of Baal rather than God himself. And so this is the problem that the Lord's pointing out. You're looking to a God, expecting this God to give life and sustenance and nourishment. But the problem is, he's not going to raise you up. In other words, you're looking at a false God for deliverance, only to find this false God is not going to bring about deliverance. So it's the Lord saying, you're looking to the Most High, but not to the true Most High. You're looking to the Most High places, but not to the God who dwells in the heavens. So the Lord's pointing out their problems so far. He's called them. He's loved them. Israel has pursued another God. And as Israel pursues the Baals, Israel's not turning to the God and not calling out to the one true God uh, that is the one uh, who is the true redeemer of his people. And so God is not one who's just simply cruel, uh, desiring to destroy his people and seeking to uh, bring them back to a land of slavery just because he desires to do this. But the people have completely misunderstood their God. They they haven't taken the time to really understand who their God is. They're not really seeking him out. They're not seeking out wise counsel. Uh, they're doing things by their own eyes and by what they think is right. And so we can say, well, then what's the Lord going to do? Because clearly, when we hear this, that Baal's not going to save them. The Lord's people are coming to grips with the reality that their God is the one who can bring them and hand them over to foreign lands. Is the Lord just going to leave them in this place? And this is where in verses 8 through 11, if anyone turns to you and says, the God of the Old Testament is just a vindictive mean God, it's important to turn to these verses and know these verses. Because they're very important in the context of Hosea. Not to say the other verses are not, but this is very important to understand the Lord's purpose. Because we have these questions in verse 8 where we're invited into the mind of God, where he reveals his internal struggle. Where God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. When you read this, and we're invited into the mind of God, what what do we see? The Lord's weeping. This is the Lord actually crying. He's actually hurt. And he's using human language to express this. But he's hurt by their rejection of him. And as he's hurt by their rejection of him, he's recalling events of what he has promised. So, you have Adma and Zawim, Zebuim. Hopefully, I'm saying that right. You have these two cities that are recalled for us in Genesis 14. This is the outworking of Sodom and Gomorrah. Deuteronomy 29, uh, verse 23, the Lord promises that if Israel pursues uh, idolatry, the Lord's going to make them like these cities. And so, the Lord has made very explicit that if you go into this land, you lose sight of the purpose of this land, uh, you pursue the false gods, you lose sight of me as the one who grants wisdom and life, you will be like these cities that are wiped off the face of the earth. And so the Lord, as he presents this, he's sobbing. And he's saying, here he is, one who knows what he has said, what he desires to do, but what do I do? Do I just hand you over to what you deserve? I've shown love, you've rejected. I've been gracious, and all you've done is continue to turn against me and and not follow me as my people. And so his heart and his compassion is tender towards his people, but at the same time, the Lord knows what his people deserve. And so we, we have this, this inner turmoil of going on within God. So what does the Lord go on to say? Well, in verse 9, he goes on to say that I'm not going to execute my anger. He's not, he's not man, but he's God. He is the Holy One. So notice the play here. You have in verse 7, they call out to the most high places, Baal, but he can't save. Right? Because he's a God of the figment of their imagination. He's a convenient God that they've made up. But you have then the, the reality of who God is in verse 9. He is the one who's able to save. So the contrast that, that God's making here is that man cannot change or, or regenerate a human being, right? We we can't truly bring about life. Even when we bring an infant into the world that infant's still under the common curse. So it's it's sort of a strange thing, isn't it? Because the moment we enter into the world, or the moment we're conceived, as we're growing and developing, we're also progressing towards death, right? So we bring life, but but it's not a life that endures as human beings. But the Lord's saying, I am one who is different. Not only can God bring about life and and bring man up from the dust and breathe life into him, but God is the one who is able to save. He's not going to bring his burning anger against his people. He is a God who will continue to be at work. He is a God who cultivates new life. And so he's not like a man who can merely make an assertion And not have the power to execute that assertion. He is a God who can truly kill and can truly make alive. And so this is a promise that God gives. I'm not going to destroy you. Basically, I remember the covenant I've made to Abraham. I am a gracious God. I will bring about life. My purpose for Israel, for my people, is not done. That's the assurance here. The Lord then recalls something significant. As the Lord goes forth, <coughs> He goes forth like a lion. He roars. And you think about that, and you say, "Well why is that so significant? Well, the roaring lion is again making explicit the point of verse nine the Holy One, Lion of Judah, Genesis 49, the true King of Israel who comes and enters into history. As a roaring lion who enters history, what is he going to do? Well, he stands against Egypt, he stands against Assyria, Revelation, he stands against Babylon, right? All the the superpowers that have stood against the Lord, the Lion of Judah will enter history and stand against them. But as he's a lion who roars, what else happens? Something that is quite opposite. His children shall come from the west, right? If if you hear a roaring lion standing in a pasture, your instinct is not to run towards it, especially unarmed. I mean, you might Go against it if your family's there and you feel like you got to defend your family and you may go out, grab your gun or whatever you can to face off with this thing to make sure your family's safe. But your instinct is not, let me just send the kids over to this lion and I'm sure it will be cuddly and end well. But that's the picture. That the Lord's going to roar, his people will tremble, the earth will tremble because his roar is so loud and potent But as he roars and calls forth, his little children, his little calves, who were so incompetent, who who couldn't walk in their own, will hear the roar of their Lord and will come and assemble before him as are in the foreign nations and will gather together and they will find their refuge and strength in this great God. He is able to overcome. Now, when we hear this, we still might think, well, what what do we do with all this? Well, one of the great mysteries that Hosea 11 is recalling for us is we think about the image of Christ. And we think about Christ as he goes and he gathers his people. We think of the mission of Christ. Where does Matthew begin the mission of Christ? In Matthew 2.15, even before the public advent of Christ, we have there the recollection and recalling for us Hebrews 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That Christ relives the failed history of Israel. Luke's gospel goes back to Adam. Matthew's gospel goes back to Israel. Christ is reliving, fulfilling the issue and mission of Israel. And so again, if somebody says, well, this God is cruel and mean, you say, what do you do with Hosea 11.1 and Matthew 2.15 with the Lord reliving the history of his people who have failed? We think also as Christ, as he leaves Egypt, again, the significance of going out of Egypt and being called reliving that exodus event is where Christ is the one who never apostatizes. He meets the serpent in the wilderness after this event and he doesn't fail. He passes successfully. We think of the false Israel, heeding the voice of Satan, heeding the false gods and giving in to them. Christ, when we think about going to Jerusalem, and we have this recollection where, yes, when he goes to Jerusalem, Luke 12, 50 records, he has great distress because he knows his mission. He is to go and die on the cross. And it's not just dying on the cross. It's being rejected by his people, a series of tests, enduring hell. This this cross is a big deal. In fact, even a Samaritan village rejects him and he has opportunity to wipe them off the face of the earth, making them like Sodom and Gomorrah or or the cities mentioned here. And he doesn't do it. And when we hear of Christ even going to the foreign area and and to the, the, the city of Jerusalem, what does he do? Well, we have the recollection of where Christ weeps on the road to Jerusalem. I mean, think about that. He knows his mission. He knows what he's supposed to do. And yet he weeps that his own people will reject him just like the prophets and the word of God and not embrace the substance of it. And he weeps on that road. And why? Because he knows the pain of what he will face. He knows what his people are going to do. They will destroy him like they did with the prophets. They will destroy the Word of God because they do not value the Word of God. But how does the story end? When we think about the disciples, how they hide out in a room. They assume Christ is dead. They assume that that's the end of the mission. They've been duped. Uh, They thought maybe he was a great rabbi, only to find he's not a great rabbi in their minds. And then Christ stands in their midst as a resurrected Lord. This is the beauty of what we read in Hosea 11 about the Lion of Judah. He's not one who is in the grave, but he comes and he comes with the great roar, the roar of calling his people, conferring life, taking those who are dead and bringing new life in the midst of them so they are made alive and secured in Christ. And so when we ask this question then, how do we know that the God of the Old Testament really is a suffering God who cares for his people? How do we know that? Well, the people who kick him to the curb, he calls my son. In verse 1, he is the Lion of Judah who comes to defend his people. His great roar assembles his people before him. He is the one who does administer justice. But how is that done? By the Father pouring out his justice on the Son who goes to his people who reject him, reject the word of the cross, reject the word of the gospel, reject the word of the prophets. And he's the one who endures the wrath of the living Father, using that as a means to accomplish his redemption. But he is also raised to life, in the image of the disciples cowering in a locked room. Christ doesn't leave them there, but he comes to them. He confers upon them life and secures them. So let us then walk as a people grounded and made alive in Christ Jesus. Let us walk as a people who have moved from death to life in our Redeemer and our Savior. Let us look to our great Lion of Judah, who is our shield and defender. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.